0: Well, I would invite you to join me in standing for the reading of God's Word. If you do have your Bibles, feel free to make your way to the book of Exodus for our scripture reading this morning, which will be from Exodus chapter 4, verses 18 through 31. Exodus chapter 4, verses 18 through 31. And these are the words of the one true God. Moses went back to Jethro, his father-in-law, and said to him, Please, let me go back to my brothers in Egypt to see whether they are still alive. And Jethro said to Moses, Go in peace. And the Lord said to Moses in Midian, Go back to Egypt, for all the men who were seeking your life are dead. So Moses took his wife and his sons And had them ride on a donkey, and he went back to the land of Egypt. And Moses took the staff of God in his hand. And the Lord said to Moses, When you go back to Egypt, see that you do before Pharaoh all the miracles that I have put in your power. But I will harden his heart, so that he will not let the people go. Then you shall say to Pharaoh, Thus says the Lord, Israel is my Firstborn son. And I say to you, let my son go, that he may serve me. If you refuse to let him go, behold, I will kill your firstborn son. At a lodging place on the way, the Lord met him and sought to put him to death. Then Zipporah took a flint and cut off her son's foreskin and touched Moses' feet with it and said, Surely, You are a bridegroom of blood to me. So he let him alone. It was then that she said, a bridegroom of blood, because of the circumcision. The Lord said to Aaron, Go into the wilderness to meet Moses. And he went and met him at the mountain of God and kissed him. And Moses told Aaron all the words of the Lord with which he had sent him to speak and all the signs that he had commanded him to do. Then Moses and Aaron went and gathered together all the elders of the people of Israel. Aaron spoke all the words that the Lord had spoken to Moses, and did the signs in the sight of the people. And the people believed. And when they heard that the Lord had visited the people of Israel, and that he had seen their affliction, they bowed their heads and worshiped. The grass withers and the flower fades. The word of the Lord stands forever. Let us pray. Our gracious God and heavenly Father, we do praise you that your word endures forever. For it it is made known to us the way of salvation, opening our eyes to see the Lord Jesus Christ in all of his glory and majesty. And so we pray even now once again that you would give us eyes to see, that you would give us ears to hear. That we might behold the glory of the King and increase in the knowledge of Him, to be rooted in Christ and grounded in Christ and established in the faith. In Jesus' name we pray, Amen. You may be seated. Well, on April 13, 1970, 1970, the Apollo 13 spacecraft was but 56 hours into its flight before an oxygen tank exploded, forcing the crew to abort its mission and prompted those now famous words, Houston, we've had a problem. And since then, the Apollo mission has infamously become a bit of a case study in crisis management. What do you do in a crisis? How do you lead? How do you react in a crisis? And certainly, there have been many useful lessons gleaned, how to communicate clearly, how to innovate responsively. But what the experts seem to all agree upon is that the most important thing in crisis management is establish the urgent priority. What is highest priority? See, for the Apollo astronauts in that crisis of explosion, the great urgency very quickly shifted from that of a lunar landing mission to that of a rescue mission and simply the cause for survival. And in a similar way, you may have noticed that we have much the same in our text this morning in that Moses is launched, if you will, on a mission of divine deliverance to go before Pharaoh, but due to a deadly mistake, it really quickly turns into a crisis that calls for nothing less than redemptive rescue. And so we'll walk through this text in three simple portions, looking at the mission of Moses, secondly, the mistake of Moses, and then lastly, the meeting of Moses, his mission, his mistake, his meeting. But in all of it, we aim to focus not so much on Moses, but on greater things, namely, the sovereign God, who in his grace saves his people through blood, salvation through blood. So firstly, let us look at the mission of Moses. Now, recall where we left off. We had the rather deflecting Moses saying, God, I can't go. Don't send me. I'm not eloquent in speech. I'm not the man for the job. Perhaps an attitude that continues. As you see, verse 18, this rather shy, perhaps squirrely request to Jethro to return to Egypt simply to check in on his countrymen. And of course, such a half-truth is quickly followed by God's command. His imperative in verse 19, Moses, go back. Even encouraging Moses that all the men, his enemies who are seeking his life, they have all died. Remember, Moses would have made such enemies when he struck down that Egyptian, which caused his very flight to e- from Egypt to Midian to begin with some 40 years ago. And God says, Moses, it is now safe. But we'll soon see... It is safe only in the sense that it's safe to be in the eye of a hurricane. We get ominous reminders that this will be no small mission for Moses. And perhaps as a a preview of what is to come, maybe a token as to just how insufficient Moses is and how all-sufficient God is, notice he, he takes this quite ordinary item, a staff, and notice it is described in quite extraordinary terms in verse 20. He names it the staff. Of God, It was Teddy Roosevelt who once said, Speak softly, but carry a big stick, and you will go far. And Moses, in a sense, will have to trust that he possesses the biggest stick of all, because he is to go forth not in his own might or his own strength, but entirely reliant upon the power of God. In a sense, you could say Moses himself is just like that stick. One day, very ordinary man, ordinary shepherd. The next day, the mouthpiece of God. One day, very ordinary man. The next day, God's chosen mediator to liberate the people of God. And I trust you know that you too are in so many ways just like that staff as a Christian. On your own, inert, lifeless, ordinary. But God, in His amazing kindness and power, takes ordinary men and women with ordinary ministries, with rather ordinary weaknesses. In his all-powerful hands, he wields them about to bring about extraordinary fruit to accomplish his purposes. And we find next, Moses is summoned, reminded to exactly that. As the Yiddish proverb goes, if you want to make God laugh, just tell him your plans. And Moses, in a sense, is probably thinking, I have cooked up some pretty sweet plans I get to go back, check in on my countrymen. I've got my wife and children with me. Best of all, God is telling me that all those pesky enemies, all my opponents have been wiped out. They have died. What pleasant plans I have in my heart. And Of course, we know from Proverbs, the answer comes from the Lord. Well, verse 21, let us see God's answer when God tells him. Verse 21, Moses See that you do before Pharaoh all the miracles that I have put in your power. Moses is summoned to nothing less than full-orbed obedience in the face of the greatest power in the known world. Right? Don't merely perform this before the Israelites. No, go before Pharaoh. In our modern context, it's like saying, go before Hitler. Go before Stalin. Go before Mussolini. Oh, and don't forget to take your toy pop gun with you, right? Bring the staff when you go. And what is Moses to do? But know that he goes forth entirely reliant upon the power of God. And it is no different today for the Christian life, yes? Be strong in the Lord and in the strength of, not your might. Be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. That God's power be made perfect in our weakness. For what does God say next? Does God say, oh, Moses, man, I really hope these miracles work. I mean, I really hope these work. I mean, these miracles, this is the best bag of tricks that I have. I really hope that we can persuade Pharaoh to let the people go. Because if not, I have no plan B. Oh, may it never be. The almighty, sovereign God says, Moses, go do all the miracles and expect no results. Go do all the signs and expect no satisfaction. In fact, Moses, the more that you plead for freedom, the tighter and tighter will Pharaoh clench down his grip upon you. Moses is called to a long obedience in one direction. Verse 21 clarifies, while he is performing all of these miracles, God says, I, the Lord Most High, I will harden Pharaoh's heart so that he will not let the people go. There's this great opening scene from the Lord of the Rings where the young hobbit Frodo is whimpering and whining that Gandalf, the wizard, is late. Even telling him, Gandalf, you are late for our appointment. And Gandalf, as only Gandalf could, the wise wizard, pauses and says, A wizard is never late, nor is he early. A wizard arrives precisely at the time that he means to. I can't say if that's true of wizards or not, but what we can certainly say, how true that is of our great God, that he is never late, he is never early, he arrives precisely at the time that he has purposed it according to his holy will. For we see that God is doing something far greater than immediate gratification would have it. By hardening Pharaoh's heart, God is is stacking the deck as it were, setting the scales for a kind of glory exhibition that all may know that mighty, mighty Pharaoh is really not so mighty after all. Kids, I'm sure... If your childhood is at all like mine, you've had a chance to play with Play-Doh, shape it, mold it, and make whatever shape or craft you'd like at will with Play-Doh. Kid, you should know that God is so powerful, so wise, that he does that not with Play-Doh, but does that with the human heart. In this case, with Pharaoh, who is but clay to be formed by an all-wise potter. For what does Romans 9 tell us of this incident? That for this very purpose, Pharaoh was raised up, that God might display his power through him and that the name of God would be proclaimed in all the earth. The victory of God is not a private announcement. What does Paul say in the book of Acts but that Jesus Christ was not crucified in some corner of the world? The crucifixion of Christ was not done in some remote, screened-off area, hidden. No, Christ is publicly crucified for all to see. And then what? Publicly resurrected for all to see. So that it might be clear that God has triumphed over the principalities and powers, and He has put them to open shame, so that His power would be made known in all the earth. And you get a preview of that here with Pharaoh. But not only that, not only do we see the power of God here, we see, too, what is precious to God in our next verse. Verse 22, he says, Then you shall say to Pharaoh, as in, only after I have hardened his heart, then and only then, tell him this message. And I want this message in all caps, Bold, underlined, highlighted. I want everyone to know what is most precious to me. Verse 22, thus says the Lord, Israel is my firstborn son. Notice the command even changes from let my people go to let my son go. Pharaoh, they're mine, not yours. Pharaoh, they are not your slaves. That is my son. Pharaoh, you have messed with not only the great man of war, you have messed with the greatest father of all. They are the apple of my eye, chosen, elected by me to be my treasured possession. And Christian, I hope, I pray, your heart soars at the thought that that is even truer today of his church. That God's sovereign power... And God's precious possession meet, collide. As Ephesians tell us that before the foundation of the world, God chose, elected, predestined you in love unto what? Unto the adoption as sons. God looks at you and seeing you in Christ says, that is my child. That is my son and my daughter. And as it sinks in, we're struck by the great purpose of our liberation. What is the point of our liberation? Let my son go. And maybe we say, well, why? What is the point of being let go? Verse 23, so that he may serve me. That we are reminded that we are not simply freed from, but freed to. In other words, we are not merely freed from sin or from oppression, as if it stops there, but that we're simultaneously freed unto God. To live a life of service. Free that we could present our lives as a living sacrifice. Well as we close out the mission of Moses. Just notice that the tone shifts rather abruptly from warmness to that of warning. As God shows his supremacy not simply over the church but over the state. Over every ruler. Over every domain. As you see his authority flexed in verse 23 with this warning. If you refuse Pharaoh... I will kill your firstborn son. Very important to notice that Pharaoh, though hardened, is entirely answerable, entirely accountable for his sin. As God's firstborn is now set over and against Pharaoh's firstborn. And we get a kind of preview to Passover. And in that way, we're prompted as we look to Israel, God's firstborn son, we look deeper still to God's only begotten Son, Jesus Christ. That just as God called Israel out of Egypt, those very same words are fulfilled of the Lord Jesus Christ. In Matthew 2, Out of Egypt I called my Son. That just as Israel was under Pharaoh's oppression, Mary and Joseph, there they are, under Herod's campaign of death. But unlike God's Son, Israel, This Son of God would not wander. This Son of God would not go astray or bow down to an idol. This Son of God would not even be let go. He would be pierced for our transgressions. He instead would be crushed for our iniquities, that He might be the true firstborn of many brethren, true Israel, true obedient Son who walked in the fear of the Lord. So, if you're here this morning and wouldn't call yourself a Christian, know that this, this ancient story of Israel held in slavery and in captivity is ever relevant today. That scripture testifies to you that man's condition, your condition, is accurately summarized as slavery. That is to say, that you are enslaved by your sin, held captive by your lust, by your anxieties, even obedient. To the course of a fallen world. And perhaps more to the point, that you are entirely powerless to free and redeem yourself. And so, we hear the good news God, in His kindness, has sent His only begotten Son to set free captives like you and I who would repent of sin and come to Him in simple faith and trust. Well, there's a word on the mission of Moses. Let us now look at the mistake of Moses in verse 24. And mistake really is is far too generous uh, of a word, even as we reflect upon what we read this morning from the book of Hebrews. Take care. Take care lest there be in you an evil, unbelieving heart to have you fall away from the living God. And here again that first part. Take care. Be careful. Be careful. Kids, I'm sure your parents have told you when you're approaching danger, be careful. Watch out. Kids, that is doubly so when it comes to spiritual dangers. That we are to be, as Jesus told us, to watch and pray. Pray and watch, lest you fall into temptation. For we know that God's fatherly anger may come upon us for our disobedience. And we have exactly that in verse 24. Right after the threat goes out to Pharaoh, it seems to be reverted and comes right back as judgment begins in the household of God. Verse 24 says, the Lord met him and sought to put him to death. Now, immediate question is, who is this him in verse 24? Is God going to put to death Moses or does this refer to Moses' son? And the text certainly does not specify but I do think because of the focus on firstborn circumcision, we're right to see it as the latter. Which, scholars have said, this raises even more questions, right? Like, which son of Moses is this? How does Zipporah fit into this? Why, all of a sudden, just now, is there this death penalty? And as you could guess, all kinds of fun, ingenious answers to those questions. One commentator I read this week remarked this. Biblical scholars love this passage because it is totally incomprehensible. I think we'd be right to respectfully disagree in that one of the attributes of God's word is that God's word is clear, perspicuous to use the old term. God's word is clear. God has revealed himself in a way that he and his word can be understood and is always profitable for our teaching and our instruction. Perhaps not as clear as we would like, not clear equally in every part, but it is clear. And thus, what is clear from this text is that a very sharp line has been drawn between Pharaoh's firstborn and between Israel's firstborn. And that the drawing of that line is drawn by circumcision. God's covenant sign signifying God's covenant relationship. No dry, dusty religious formula. No, 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 circumcision, signifying that I will be your God and you shall be my people. And if not, you would be cut off in judgment and in death. And that is what makes this mistake of Moses so grievous for his son is not circumcised. God has said, here is my faithfulness to a thousand generations Here is my sacred wedding ring. And Moses, at least by his actions, seems to say, what of it? What of it? He's acting non-covenantal. You might remember that song, Walk Like an Egyptian. Well, Moses is walking like an Egyptian or walking like a Midianite. And treating God's covenant of grace as if it was a small thing. And the steadfast love of God has little to no importance. And so the man does not match the mission. To be sure, we don't know why this happened. And commentators, again, have all kinds of ingenious guesses, up to and including that Moses plain forgot, which I think is highly unlikely. But of greater significance is, as we just affirmed, the serious warning against the danger of spiritual negligence. It reminds us of the gravity of omission, of not doing what I ought to do. I know for me, every time I go out to my garden, I am sorely, painfully reminded of the power of negligence, and that if you want a garden of weeds, here's a hot tip for you. All you have to do is nothing. Just do nothing, and you will have an abundant harvest of weeds all season long. And how much more so is that the case in the spiritual life? Do not neglect so great a salvation. And what an acute admonishment to those of us who are fathers, those of us who are husbands, as heads of our household, how our spiritual negligence, our passivity, may well reap spiritual consequences upon the next generation. What an admonishment to those of us who are church leaders, how easy it might be to minister to everybody else and neglect our own households. But I hope, too, As much as it warns against negligence, my hope is that it would equally motivate diligence. That our great God does not leave us in the dark. Our great God is not hiding. He gives us the means of grace. He gives us prayer and sacrament. He gives us these things so that not only do we not neglect, but we ripen, we mature, we grow up into this great salvation of ours. And so if you find yourself here this morning, in a state of lethargy and apathy, consider this a day of ignition that God calls out to you, promises to you, that your diligence holds out a treasure of godliness that you will never look back in vain upon. And While we're on the topic of sacraments, kids, a great catechism question to think about today, a great question is, what does my baptism call me? to be. It is an awesome thing to be baptized, but what does it call me to be? Whether you're three or seven or ten or boy or girl, what does it say about me? The answer, it calls me to be a true follower of Christ, to truly follow Jesus Christ. Something that the neglectful Moses is about to learn firsthand. As we ask, what could possibly free him from this crisis? We'll just notice, verse 25, Zipporah springs into action, flint knife, and cuts off her son's foreskin. And that word, cut off, is so fitting. As it transports us to Genesis 17, and remember this covenantal penalty that reads like this, any uncircumcised male shall be cut off from his people. It is very clear, if the foreskin is not cut off, then you shall be cut off as a covenant breaker. And so Moses is now right in the divine crosshairs. And God is justly seeking to put him or his son to death. And so we must ask, what could possibly save Moses? What could possibly avert the wrath of God? What could possibly atone for the negligence that him and you and I all fall into? And we could answer that question in one simple word, the word blood, a message that comes through his Midianite wife. If you're like me, you can still remember details from your wedding day, what you wore, what your bride wore, spouse wore, perhaps the vows that you made to your spouse, the vows that your spouse in turn made to you. And I know for me, while the memory is a little faded through the years, I am nearly certain my wife did not call me a groom of blood. I am nearly certain she did not say, With this ring, I take you as my bloody husband. Yet we look at verse 25, and this is exactly what Zipporah says to Moses. Difficult to know exactly what she means, but I do think that as a Midianite, she is at least expressing, Moses, behold, By way of our marriage covenant, by way of our union and our covenant, you have brought the blood of the covenant-keeping God upon our household, nearly destroying us. And unlike his delayed obedience, she has this remarkably quick obedience, even touching the foreskin on Moses. That verb, by the way, same Hebrew verb for the word touch At Passover, when they touched the blood upon the doorpost and smeared it. And therefore, in verse 26, what is the immediate outcome of this? But that he, that is God, let them alone. The wrath of God. Divine justice. Taken away. And from this we learn two very, very precious truths. Firstly, the requirement of blood. As Hebrews says, without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. That this shed blood of this son propels us to look once again to the greater shedding of blood. The precious shed blood of Jesus Christ. The true groom of blood. See, Moses becomes a groom of blood through his disobedience. And Christ becomes our groom of blood through his obedience. And to say Christ is our groom brings us to a second point. In a sense, we should add a word, not just the requirement of blood, but we find the requirement of covenant blood, covenant blood, right? This is not just generic blood. This is not blood from a scraped knee. This is not blood from a paper cut. This is not blood from an accident with a flint knife. No, it is sacramental blood, blood shed by way of covenant to seal. I will be your God and you will be my people. And the same is ever true for us today. What is it that will conclude our worship here together? But this sign, this seal, and the words that blood, my blood, the blood of the new covenant which is poured out for the forgiveness of your sins. Precious covenant blood. He is the true bridegroom who was cut off that we might be brought in. That our covenant head was considered a covenant breaker to satisfy God's justice that we might have the blessing of Abraham. Well, lastly, let us look at the meeting of Moses in verse 27. And we'd certainly be remiss to skip over this part that it is, notice, God himself who sends Aaron to meet and to encourage Moses in verse 27 when they meet on the mountain of God. And I think it highly likely that Moses would be highly discouraged by this point. You know, they killed for his own negligence. Trembling at the mission that's before him, slow of speech, and God in his kindness sends this brother to be the lifter of his head, to be his exhorter, to be his encourager. And Christian, just think you might be the very same thing to a brother or sister in this present day, that if anxiety in a man's heart weighs him down, your encouraging word might be the lifter of his head. And notice that's what comes next. After Moses and Aaron meet, they are back on mission. Verse 29, they gather together all the elders, and then they perform all the words and deeds in verse 30. And notice they do not speak their own words or their own opinions, but all the words that the Lord had spoken. God's word has now reached God's people. And let us dare not skip over that as if this is some kind of small moment. And forget just how committed God is to revealing himself to his people through his word. Just remember what has brought us to this point. Moses saying, God, I can't do it. Pick someone else. Slow of speech. Pick Aaron, anybody else, please. And even if I go, they won't believe me. And God's reply over and over and over is, my people will be sanctified by the truth. My word is truth. And let us ask, what is the outcome? What is the effect of the showering of God's revelation? What is the result of capital T, truth, coming to this oppressed people? Well, notice in verse 31, we could sum it up in one word, faith. The people believed. Right, let's just play back the tape one more more time. God, they won't listen to me. They won't hear me. And God says, no, but they will believe me. They will listen to me. Our great God feeds your faith, our faith, through his word. Faith comes through hearing, hearing of the word of Christ. And so what a simple question for you this morning. Christian, do you believe the word of God? And I know the quick answer, yes, of course, I believe the word of God. But let us probe deeper. It is to say, convinced, that God alone is the fount of all knowledge and wisdom, that His Word alone is perfect, infallible, inerrant, breathed out by the very God who cannot lie, to publish the way of salvation, to make wise the simple, that it speaks with the highest authority, and that if you are to live, you cannot live, cannot live, of bread alone, but of every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. Christian, to believe the word of God? Perhaps we could all say, oh, for grace to trust Him more. Well, as we close our time this morning, let us lay up in our hearts, practice in our lives, but two, two truths from this portion of Scripture. Firstly, Embracing the sovereignty of God. Embracing God's sovereignty. Uh, I've noticed in coaching my son's uh, Little League baseball team over the years, I- I've noticed how it seems like nearly every game, at a crucial point in the game, I have what I've, I've come to call my, my coach's moment. Where I think to myself, oh my, we could win this game like if we just get this runner over there, if pitching holds up, if we start hitting, we are going to win this game. Or I think, oh no. <laughs> we are going to blow this game. Pitching's going to fall apart, not going to get the bats going. We're going to make too many errors. We're going to blow this game. And it dawns on me, it's of course now on me to react, anticipate and make the right coaching decisions. And certainly we ought to embrace the truth this morning. That God never, never has that experience. God does not have coaching moments. Wondering, pondering if he is going to win. Ever. That he can't. That God does not make decisions. That our great God makes decrees. And that he unchangeably, unalterably, ordains whatsoever comes to pass and makes known the end from the beginning. And we see it here. I will harden Pharaoh's heart and I will have the glory. Do you know that this morning? In a season of political turmoil, of cultural unrest, maybe simply the anxieties of home life, of Christian life, in a search for employment, the season we all find ourselves in that no one could have predicted. How strengthening it is to know that our great God predicts nothing because he predestines everything that comes to pass. And what is ours to do? But like Moses, long obedience in one direction, anchored in the truth that he is Lord of all. Which leads to our last point. What is our response? Notice the response of worship. Look once more at verse 31. The people not only believe, but when they heard that God had visited them, God had seen their affliction, they bowed their heads, and they worshiped. And that is actually rather astounding the more I, I thought about it because there is a sense in which nothing has happened yet. I mean, yes, some signs and the word, but... There is a sense in which, remember, this is all pre-deliverance. This is pre-Red Sea. This is before the redemption and Passover and all the plagues that are about to come. In fact, in the next chapter, things are going to get worse before they get better when Pharaoh doubles their workload. But yet, when simply hearing who God is for them and that he has seen their affliction, they bowed and they worshiped. Do you have the same impulse do you have the same reaction to worship God simply because he is worthy? Well, perhaps as a help, we could ask the question, how is it in the new covenant we know that God has seen our affliction and that God is with us? Well, you may have noticed Zipporah took that bloody foreskin and she threw it specifically at the feet of Moses. Which I know made me wonder immediately, why feet? Why would you throw this bloody foreskin underfoot? Well, perhaps it takes us all the way back to the very beginning and back to the garden and the promise that God gave to his first son, to his son Adam, who fell into sin and that God promised him that there will be a last Adam and that that last Adam will come and he will crush every enemy under what? Under his foot for he is the true son of God he is the true bridegroom of blood spilling his blood to save his bride let us pray our gracious God and heavenly father we praise you that you are for us who could possibly be against us For you have not spared your only begotten Son, but freely gave him up for us all. That we would be a redeemed people set free to walk in the newness of life, having been bought by nothing less than the precious blood of your only Son. That we might even be able to come to you as children unto a Father. And so we pray that the word of Christ would dwell in our hearts richly, that we might walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which we have been called. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.